up, everybody? Welcome to Take 29 of Take It On, the mental health podcast for young men. As always, you got Jonah and Reed, your dedicated hosts with an unbelievable conversation for you today. We're super excited to have Rachel Wright, a psychotherapist who specializes in sexual, emotional, and mental health relationships. Uh, we've got a, it's a really powerful conversation and we're super excited to dive in. Reed, any, anything to add before we, before we begin? No, dude, this conversation is unreal. Uh, I'm very excited to put this out so much to grasp from it and just a lot of learning being done today. Yeah. Like years of sexual education that we missed out on and should be in schools. So we, we hope you all enjoy. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. It's interesting. So as I prepared, as Reed and I prepared for this episode, there were so many topics that, that came to mind that we wanted to discuss, but we found it pretty difficult to kind of formulate these, these topics and ideas into, into questions. And I think this, this kind of reflects the challenges that most people, most men specifically have when talking about sexual and emotional relationships. So Rachel, at at a high level, could you tell us about your work and the connections you see between our sex lives and our mental health? Yeah, totally. I, first of all, I want to validate the uh, challenge in coming up with questions when we don't learn the language of these things. Um, And that's kind of the first connection of these three huge parts of our lives is that they are all integral to our entire experience in the world. Whether you are asexual or allosexual, um, whether you have a mental illness or you don't have a mental illness, um, you know, whether you're in a relationship or you're not in a relationship romantically, we all have relationships with people, right? Relationships are relationships are relationships. So like that could be a friendship, that could be with your parents, that could be with a sibling, um, a friend, a partner, whatever. We all navigate mental health because whether or not we have mental illness, we all experience emotions and our emotional health is part of our mental health. And whether we're asexual or allosexual, we're navigating a world in which we're getting mixed messages about sex constantly. We're told from one group of people or one, you know, blob, let's say, of of types of people that sex is shameful and bad and dirty. And then we get all of these other messages of you have to be a sexual being and there's something wrong with you if you're not. And then there's how all of these interact. And so our sex life affects our mental health. Our mental health affects our sex life. Our relationships affect our sex life. And our sex life affects our relationships and they all kind of ping pong off of each other. And we don't learn anything about anything about these things in school, which is so wild. Um, you know, I, the last time I saw an emotion chart in a classroom was in kindergarten and we're five in kindergarten, like between four and five years old. And that is the very last time that we learn, Hey, how do you feel? Oh, I feel sad. Okay, great. And then we don't talk about it again. And that's insane to me. So they all interact and we all learn basically nothing about any of these three areas. I think that's interesting that you brought up the kindergarten classroom chart, because 
aside from that, maybe one class in middle school, one class in high school, we have sex ed. But mm-hmm. at that point, it's about safety and you're learning about STDs and stuff like that. But never actually are we taught the language or communication or not necessarily what we're supposed to do because there's no standard, but mm-hmm. really kind of left to figure everything out for ourselves. So in your work, what are kind of the first few lessons that you, your go-to is, is to teach people that you see? Oh man, that's, whew. <laughs> so it depends on the person, of course. Um, one of the biggest things that I see right away is kind of like what you were saying about sex ed. We don't get good education. Um, I believe it's seven states now. I could be wrong on this. It might be eight, but I think it's seven. Only seven states are required to teach consent in sex ed. Oh my God. Yeah. And other than that, there are no regulations. So a school could say, um, you know, people who are born with a vulva are assigned female at birth and humans who are born with a penis are assigned male at birth. That's your sex ed. Have a good day. And like, that's it. Like they, they can do that. And there's no one saying, no, that's not enough. No, this is harmful. No, we need to talk about masturbation. People start masturbating when they are 18 months old. Like, no one talks about this. So the, in terms of sex, where I typically start with people is talking about literally what is sex. So like, what is the definition of sex? Understanding the human body for both reproductive purposes and for pleasure purposes, right? We learn about anatomy of like, oh, fallopian tubes and ovaries, but like they don't teach about the clitoris because the clitoris is only there for pleasure. So we don't learn about it. And then we get older and there are all these jokes about how people don't know where it is. And it's like, yeah, because no one told you, like, (laughs) it's not your fault. (laughs) Um, I also go into how virginity is a social construct, because that's also something that is misconceived, Um, what orgasms are and are not, and then how to communicate about all of these things. So that's kind of like the basics around sex ed. Um, you know, and then a little bit more advanced, like we'll start to get into the fluidity of sexuality and the fluidity of gender. We'll talk about sexual health, like STIs, UTIs, yeast infections, um, all of those types of things, uh, libido and desire. Uh, and then we get even more advanced and we get into like anal play and exploration and kink and BDSM and what does that mean? Um, so that's kind of under the sex umbrella. And then with relationships, I focus a lot on different relationship structures. So we all grow up in this mononormative culture. And what I mean by that is monogamy is presented to us as the only way to be in relationship. And anything else is like weird or different or like, oh God, they're just like really horny and like wanna have sex with everybody. And that is not the case. Uh, Non-monogamy existed long before monogamy did. Um, And it was actually colonizers that came in and were like, oh, we're Christian and everybody's gonna be monogamous now, including you. And it took over. Um, So thanks religion for that. Uh, So I talk a lot about that. And then, you know, communicating within your relationship. 
how do you talk? <laughs> how do you express your needs? How do you express empathy? Um, how can you express how you're feeling to your partner in a way that they can hear you and that they can respond and how to navigate all of the things that come up that way. Um, and then in terms of mental health, I typically start with like self-love. And I know that that sounds super corny, but these terms get tossed around in our culture and they are used incorrectly. So things like self-love, self-care, compassion, acceptance, uh, gaslighting, attachment theory, right? There's like a TikTok video on all of these things. And like 75% of them are just incorrect. They're just wrong. Uh, so I like to kind of debunk the terms that are floating around. And then I often will get into um, anxiety and depression. First and foremost, they are the two most common mental illnesses. And even if someone is not diagnosed with an anxiety disorder or a depressive disorder, mood disorder, we all experience anxiety in our life. Like I have not met a human that has not felt anxious. If you're out there, please call me because I want to know. Um, and we have all experienced uh, pieces of what depression feels like. And so understanding what these are and what is and isn't anxiety and what is and isn't depression and how to identify these and then how that can affect our libido, which then affects our relationship. And again, that circle and so on and so forth. So that was a very long answer, but those are, that's kind of where I start with each of those, each of those areas. Wow. This, this level of nuance is, is so fascinating. And I, I think speaks volumes to the, the conversation as a whole that we, we are not taught any, any of these topics about, about sex, let alone the, the connections between all of them, let alone the misinformation that comes out from these different, these camps or blobs that, you know, frame sex and relationships in, um, in extreme ways. Um, mm -hmm. I, I want to, I'll kind of want to, uh, dive into one of the last points you mentioned, which is the, the connection between, um, like anxiety and depression on, on libido. My, my understanding is that, um, anxiety and, and depression negatively affects sex drive. You, you, you get less yeah. horny if you're, if you're depressed or, or anxious, and it can also explain why, um, why men have a, have a hard time like, getting it up, so to speak, when, when they're mm -hmm. anxious or, or stressed. Um, could you mind walking us through what that process looks like if there's any more detail or nuance there? Yeah, totally. That's such a great question. So I think that if we're going to generalize and like zoom out super, super far, that what you said is completely correct. Like generally speaking, anxiety and depression tend to have a uh, lowered effect on someone's libido. That is not the case for everybody. There are, I have had so many clients who are deep in a depressive episode. And one of the only things that give them any sort of yummy feeling is sexual activity. And so some people actually crave it more when the chemicals in their brain are imbalanced because they get this burst of dopamine and they get this burst of oxytocin, which feels really good, even if it lasts for 10 minutes. So 
it's interesting because generally speaking, it really does affect libido negatively in, in the way that it goes down. Um, the, the thing about anxiety <laughs> is that because orgasm happens in the brain and because we, when a vulva or vagina gets wet, when a penis gets hard, that is all coming from messages in your brain. It is not separate. Just like we breathe from our brain, like our lungs are not breathing without our brain. Our genitals can't get aroused without our brain. So if our brain is thinking about something else, if our brain is judging ourselves, if our brain is full of shame, if our brain is going, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to get it up. I'm not going to be able to do this. Oh my God. They're going to think this. Oh God. Da, 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 da. Like good luck <laughs> trying to move past that and have your body do what you want it to do. Um, so it's kind of the self-fulfilling prophecy of like, when we're worried about that stuff, it actually happens because we're focusing on it and what we focus on expands. So if we go into a sexual encounter, a consensual, wonderful sexual encounter and think this is going to be freaking awesome. I am so excited. I am so excited to see this person naked. I'm so excited to touch their body and focus on what you're excited about. Focus on the body in front of you. Stop thinking about the outcome. Stop thinking about the orgasm and just be present. Your body's going to respond. And if it doesn't, there's actually something called arousal non-concordance. That's the scientific term. And it's basically when your brain is like, yeah, I'm so turned on right now. And your genitals are like, yeah, we're not. <laughs> like, what, I don't know what you're thinking, but like, we're just not there. And that is something that is very natural and normal and can happen just kind of out of the blue. And so one of the biggest things with that is to try to not judge yourself. And to just simply say to whoever you're with, like, hey, you know what? My body is not cooperating right now. I would love to focus on your body. How does that sound? You know, instead of like, oh, oh I'm so embarrassed. This isn't working. It's like, no, we're all human. Like, could you imagine if you had to like on demand be in the mood for Chinese food whenever your partner was like, I want Chinese food? Like, it's not going to happen. Sometimes you just don't want Chinese food and that's okay. Like that is okay. And the more that you judge yourself, the more that you have these messages of like, oh, I'm so frustrated. My body isn't doing what I want to do. That is just going to continue to repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. And your brain is going to get focused on that. And then there's no freaking way your body's going to be like, and now I want to have sex. <laughs> like it's just not. So let yourself off the hook and like, let your body do what it does and focus on the things that are pleasurable and focus on what is in front of you and take the focus off of quote unquote performance or orgasm. Sex is not about performance. It is about pleasure and connection. I guess I'm the only one who's viewed sex and Chinese food in the same light for <laughs> but taking one and then a couple more steps back. Um, when you said that orgasms happen in the brain, it 
mm-hmm. brought me back to when you said that we're never really taught what or what orgasms are or are not. Can you go in mm-hmm. a little bit more detail on that and what exactly that means? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so essentially, <laughs> okay, uh, let me see how like nerdy science I want to get here. Um, first and foremost, there's a lot that we don't know about orgasm. And that is because science doesn't want to fund research around sex because again, religion. (laughs) Um, So there are a lot less studies around sex. We're getting better. There was actually just a recent study around um, the use of sex toys on with women and the link to lowered uh, mental health issues. And so like, we're getting there. Um, So orgasms, they happen in the brain in the way that if you look at a brain in a functional MRI machine, like if someone is laying in an fMRI machine and they bring themselves to orgasm, you will see a certain part of the brain light up and it literally takes over your entire brain. And all of a sudden, this rush of chemicals comes through. So there are a lot of different areas, and I won't get totally into all of these, um, but there are a lot of different areas in the brain that get lit up. And essentially, like, you can't make decisions or problem solve while you're orgasming. The, The prefrontal cortex of your brain is just, like, completely flooded with pleasurable things. Um, and if I'm remembering the number correctly, there are more than like 30 or 31 major brain systems activated during orgasm. And what's really interesting is that, you know, people separate out, um, men and women's orgasms. Uh, I don't like using male and female cause that's sex versus gender. Um, but the, it both light up the same parts of the brain. They are almost identical. The biggest difference is actually uh, female orgasms last about double the time than a man's. So typically penis owners have orgasms that last about 10 seconds and women have orgasms that last about 20. And then of course that refractory period afterwards is a bit shorter for women because uh, typically there's no ejaculation. Um, so yeah, so they happen in the brain and they can be a painkiller. They release delicious chemicals. Uh, they can help with headaches. They help with mental health. And there are tons of different ways to orgasm for both, for all genders. Like all genders can orgasm in multiple ways. And also tons of people have trouble orgasming. Um, cause again, we're not taught how to do it. So yeah, that is, uh, that's what I got to say. on <laughs> So a lot of men, individuals in general, uh, are in situations where they, they want to, when, when they're pursuing sex often occurs in a, in a social setting at, at a bar, at a club where, dr- alcohol drugs are are often involved and 
uh, in college, postgraduate life, almost always they're kind of viewed as like a, like a social and sexual lubricant, if, if you will, to mm-hmm. kind of facilitate mm-hmm. being, being loosened up. Um, I, I'm curious what your thought is on that from a, like a sociocultural standpoint, but then more specifically the, the impact that certain substances like, like alcohol would have on, on sex. And as it relates to, to orgasm, the, the mental health component, I think for, for, for men, um, there's, you know, the, the, there's often a, a performance-related challenge when it comes to too much alcohol consumption, mm-hmm. and so um, what your what your worker you know thoughts on the matter? I'm super curious about. Yeah, you know, people usually, if someone is utilizing alcohol or, frankly, any other drug that lowers inhibitions, they are often combating shame that they are not identifying and working through. Um, it is a very different, so like, let's take two different uh, humans. Let's say human one is simply just drinking because they're out with their friends and they're not drunk. They're just enjoying their time. They're a bit buzzed. And they happen to then meet someone who they think is super cute. And they say, hey, like, do you want to go do this? And then they go hook up and it's like, da, 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 da. That is the healthiest version of substances and sex. Uh, In person B situation, they are using alcohol or substances to not feel the discomfort, which is often shame or fear around their sexuality or around approaching other people and having sexual experiences. And so what they're trying to do, whether it's conscious or not, is numb the shame and numb the fear. And the problem with that is, is that we cannot selectively numb emotion. If we numb one emotion, we numb our, all of them. And so what then happens is we initiate the sexual encounter and all of a sudden we're numb and our body is actually not responding in the way that we want it to. And then we feel frustrated about our body not responding. And then we feel more shame and we're back in a position worse than when we started before the alcohol came into play. So my take on it is that there's nothing wrong with going out and partying and having consensual sex with other people who are partying and having consensual sex. And if you're using it as a way to numb, if you're using it as a way to not deal with something that is there, that's when there's an issue. And that's when a sex therapist would be really helpful or really any therapist um, learning what those what those things are that's contributing to the shame um, or what the things are that's contributing to the fear so that you can have the confidence and cultivate the confidence to go do these things without substances. And if you can do it without substances, then there's nothing wrong to when you decide to do it with them, right? Because you know that it's not that you're not capable of doing it without them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Definitely. I think while we're on that topic, you know, a lot of masculine trope you hear growing up is that 
the guy who can get the most girls is he's the man. What is mm-hmm. that? Where does that come into play? And why is that? Is, is that something that, you know, takes a toll on young men and the way that they perceive sex? Oh, man, we're fed this narrative from such a young age, right? That like guys who are with a bunch of women are the man. And then if a woman does the same thing, she's a big old slut. And both of those things are not true. <laughs> like you are not cooler because you've had sex with more people and you're not sluttier or more bad or ickier because you've had sex with more people. All that the number of sex you've had people means is that you've had sex with that many people. That's it. It doesn't mean anything about your personality. It doesn't mean anything about how cool you are or how not cool you are or how, you know, uh, responsible you are. None of that has anything to do with the amount of people that we've had sex with. And we're kind of getting away from this trope a bit. Um, you know, when, when I was younger, the movies that were made for teens were still very much in that kind of line of thinking. They had messaging around that. And now I'm watching teenagers have content come out that isn't as um, overt in that connection, which is really cool. I'm like really enjoying seeing that. So I think we are shifting a little bit in that way. And it's really up to, to us as the quote unquote younger, I'm not that much younger, but the younger generations to really like get rid of that. And when we hear it, just kind of like challenge it. You know, like if you hear someone say like, oh yeah, I I had sex with four people last weekend. And then the, somebody else in the group is like, oh dude, you're so cool. Like ask them why that makes them cool. And I bet you they will not know how to answer that question. And like the second we ask that, it's like, oh, uh, I don't, I don't know. It was just like fun. And it's like, oh, well, I would love to celebrate your fun. Like, <laughs> that sounds great. Like, let's celebrate your fun. But like, it has nothing to do with how cool you are or not. You know what I mean? Like, really like pushing that and asking and people won't know how to answer. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that that's so, so simple, but, but so powerful. And I think, uh, Rachel, something I love about this conversation without us even having to ask a question like targeted in this way, you've provided so many different, like small, like strategies that, um, young, young men or our listeners can kind of implement in their, in their sexual and emotional relationship lives that don't require seeking a therapist. I think as you, as you mentioned in our conversation or our discussion earlier about, um, the incorporation of, of alcohol to kind of numb feelings of shame, you know, and our, we've had several, conversations with previous guests about the the value and importance of therapy, but sadly therapy can be stigmatized and, or just inaccessible to, to certain folks. And so these, these kind of tangible, actionable, um, shifts in, in behavior that like challenge the kind of normative ideas surrounding sounding sex and can foster healthier sexual relationships, I think are, are really, really valuable for, for our audience. 
Um, to, to pivot a little bit, I, I wanted to get your, your thoughts on how men can formulate healthier emotional relationships. Um, I think mm. in line with, you know, what Reed was saying earlier about, you know, men being like, or men are seen to be the man if they have sex with a lot of women. I think there are a lot of uh, stigmas and, and, and roles that we follow as it relates to how men should like act or behave in a, in a sexual and emotional relationship. Tropes of like being, being the breadwinner, being cool, standoffish, not as, as intimate and vulnerable. How do you, how do you try to challenge these and what advice would you have on a, on a guy in a relationship, trying to pursue a relationship that wants to get a better sense of their, of their emotions? Oh man. Okay. So first and foremost, I will challenge every person listening to this to try to unpack what gender is. Gender is a social construct that we have created. So the idea of these gender roles, they were created to be the norm, just like monogamy was created to be the norm, just like uh, being heterosexual was created to be the norm, just like being cisgender is created to be the norm. And we all know that those are not necessarily the norm, right? Like th- there's so many queer people in the world. Why we assume that people are heterosexual until they say otherwise is insane. And so when we really look at gender and ask ourselves, like, where did this come from? Where did this idea come from that being emotional is not a dude thing? And if you start looking at the past, if you start looking at gender theory, even if you do one Google search around gender social construct theories and like read two articles on it. And I actually have a workshop on this with a a colleague of mine. um, You start to realize really quick that all of these are just things that we made up. Like we just simply made them up. And by we, I mean like human beings over time. Um, So I think releasing this idea that there is a right or wrong way to be insert gender here. Um, You know, there's not even a right or wrong way to be non-binary. There's not a right or wrong way to be a woman. There's not a right or wrong way to be a man. There is what works for you. Um, So once you can release that, it becomes a bit easier to lean into learning about your emotions because you don't have this little voice in your head that's like, men don't have emotions. Like, no, you do. Same. (laughs) Yes, you do. Um, So releasing that and then really doing some emotional intelligence work, like start reading things about emotional intelligence and EQ and identifying emotions and communicating them, you know, follow Instagram accounts like mine or other therapists that are putting out content and doing Q and A's around this stuff all the time. Um, there's also really great organizations that have super, super low fee therapies that are remote therapists that are remote. And like, that is accessible to so many people now. Like the world has evolved to where if you want to improve your emotional health or emotional literacy or communication, all of the tools are available to you. It's just a matter of finding them and following through. And so I would pose the question of 
why do you want to do it? Because if you're not sure why, it's going to be really hard to keep motivated. You're going to be like, this is just too hard. I'm over it. But if you know your why, it's going to be a lot easier. We talked a little bit about the communication or lack thereof in certain sexual situations. Um, obviously, they're thought to be situations where it can either be awkward or not exactly knowing what to do. What are some strategies or pieces of advice you would give to the men listening on how to be better communicators in these types of situations? Can you repeat the first part you cut out on the first part of the question? I'm sorry. Yeah, I was just giving a little bit of pretense talking about how earlier in the conversation you mentioned that there's somewhat of a lack of communication in terms of either what we like or don't like in sexual scenarios and what are mm -hmm. some ways that men can work on becoming better communicators in these situations? So I think that, you know, really looking at what, what is your goal here and what is the purpose of communicating? We are not mind readers <laughs> and we expect other people to be mind readers a lot, whether or not we realize it that we're doing it. Um, so one of the, the first things that I would say is like, ask yourself, where in your life are you making assumptions or trying to mind read about people that you have relationships with, whether that's a friend, family member, sex partner, romantic partner, doesn't matter. And go start talking to them turn those assumptions into questions and put on your curiosity hat. Curiosity is the antidote to shame and judgment. When curiosity is present, it is almost impossible for shame and judgment to exist. They are exact opposites. So if we can cultivate curiosity we are more likely to not only become closer to the people in our lives, but we will get to know what they want and need. And it will feel so much easier to then give it to them because you're not going to be throwing spaghetti at a wall and seeing what sticks. You're going to actually know. That contrast between curiosity and shame is so powerful. Like I'm sitting here just thinking about it. I never thought about how the two like are truly, truly op like opposites uh, of one another, mm -hmm. uh, even beyond like sex, gender, emotional oh, yeah. relationships, just like any, any source of like shame I felt for, for doing something or being judged by it. If I'm, you know, if I, if I approach it with like curiosity, like it's, it's almost impossible to be like relying on the, like, you know, whatever norms or, or social constructs that are, are informing that. Um, so Rachel, thank you for that. I think that's just so applicable just broadly yeah. for things that can make us insecure and anxious. Um, I want to ask a quick question about, about dating apps, uh, just because I, I graduated from college last summer and being a, uh, a college student and a uh, young adult during the, the pandemic, I think that 
a lot of people were relying on apps like Tinder, Hinge, Grinder, you name it, as a way to, to connect in lieu of traditional hookups, given the inability to have kind of larger gatherings where, you know, mm-hmm. that are more conducive to, to a hookup or meeting someone to, to have sex with. Um, but in, in my experience, I know you've, you've spoken about this before. I've seen these apps kind of get, get overwhelming and it kind of strips the, the human element out of developing a relationship or a sexual connection, connection. So I was wondering if you could speak on this a little bit and um, draw on, on some of your experience with how kind of dating apps have changed our, our sexual relationships. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, there are so many benefits to dating apps. Like, I just want to name that off the top. It is so hard to meet people, especially once you graduate from college and are no longer in these really like contained social environments. It becomes harder and harder the further away from school you get. You wind up then meeting people at work and then it's like friends of your friends at work. And it's just, it's hard. It's, It's very, very hard. So dating apps as a concept, wonderful, great, fabulous just like the internet as a concept is wonderful, great, fabulous. In practice, what can happen is we start to, the part of our brain that like enjoys the patterns of games starts to kind of take over. And we forget that the the photo we're swiping on so quickly is another human being. And we forget that once we matched with someone and then we see more of their photos and say, oh, I'm not attracted to them and click unmatch or disconnect right away. We forget that that is a human on the other end. And I'm not saying that that means that every person that you match with and then decide you don't like, you like owe an explanation to. That That is not it. And if we can just be a bit more mindful and ask ourselves, how do I wanna be treated? And I know that that sounds so like, oh, the golden rule, but like, it's true. Like if you really ask yourself, how, would I, how do I wanna be treated on this app? And if you are behaving differently than that to other people, maybe shift it up a little bit. And again, that doesn't mean that like you have to, if you're looking for a one night stand, that doesn't mean that you have to like ask about their grandma. You know what I mean? Like none of this, you get to decide what it looks like and you get to decide what the dynamic looks like and what respect looks like and what care looks like. You know, that could be, care could be asking for someone's, you know, when was the last time you were tested for STIs? Oh, two days ago. Great. I'll be over in five minutes. Like that could be the care. But that has to be a consensual between both of you. And just remembering that there is another human on the other side of this thing is so powerful and so important to the whole thing working better. Rachel, this has been phenomenal. Thank you so much for joining us today and helping us push this type of content out to a community that that clearly needs a lot of help. And there's quite a bit to learn on all fronts. So once again, we'd just like to thank you for joining us. And, you know, hopefully if you're listening to this, you also appreciate everything that Rachel had to say today. I know I truly learned a lot and Jonah, I'm sure you feel quite the same. Yeah, Rachel, this has been 
in, incredible. Uh, the exact kind of conversations that you have been encouraging the, the ideas uh, or the harmful tropes you've been debunking and the, the strategies uh, that you've been um, advocating for, for men, young individuals generally to um, improve their mental health as it relates to their sexual and emotional relationships. This is exactly in line with what Reed and I had when we, when we created Taken On almost almost a year ago. So thank you so much for being part of this conversation. I know our, our audience will find this tremendously valuable. Thank you. Thank you so much. And if anybody needs anything or has questions, like please feel free to DM me, shoot me an email from my website, like whatever form of contact. I'm so happy to like dig into more of this with you if, if that's something that you want. We'll definitely be sure to tag your Instagram on, uh, on the promotions for this. But if anyone's listening, uh, where can they find you on socials? My Instagram is at the right underscore Rachel. So T-H-E-W-R-I-G-H-T underscore R-A-C-H-E-L. Uh, that is by far where I'm most active. I'm also on Twitter with the same handle, just without the underscore. And then my website is rachelwrightnyc.com. Awesome. Thank you again, Rachel. And this has been